Welcome to the Book Evangelist Podcast, here to spread the good news that books and reading will save us all. Lissa and Marion will be talking about what's up in their reading and writing lives, reviewing recent reads, urging each other on to writing triumph, and generally wallowing in the pleasure of hanging out with a friend who loves books. Join us, wallow with us. This is episode 7, in which we will be discussing The City in the Middle of the Night by Charlie Jane Anders. Good morning, Marion. Good morning, Lissa. So uh, we read this book that I love. <coughs> yeah, I on my it. recommendation. <laughs> I finished it literally this morning. <gasps> that way to meet the deadline. Yeah, I'm proud of you. I'm all about the deadlines. So I will read the description of this book from Goodreads and then tell you what I thought of it. Perfect. Okay. It's set on a planet that has fully definitive, never-changing zones of day and night with ensuing extreme climates of endless, frigid darkness and blinding, relentless light, humankind has somehow continued apace, though the perils outside the built cities are rife with danger as much as the streets below. But in a world where time means only what the ruling government proclaims, and the levels of light available are artificially imposed to great consequence, lost souls and disappeared bodies are shadow-bound and savage, and as common as grains of sand. And one such pariah, sacrificed to the night, but borne up by time in a mysterious bond with an enigmatic beast, will rise to take on the entire planet before it can crumble beneath the weight of human existence. It's just like I described it to you. Is it? Yeah, remember I said, oh, Marion, it's so lovely. It's a book about snuggling. <laughs> it's a book about snuggling. I was going to say, you know, sometimes, technically, that's what this book is about. But I would never have described it that way, I guess. It is set on a tidally locked planet. So one side of the planet is always an eternal night and freezing cold and snowy and icy and the other side is like always in the daytime and blazing hot and uh you know you'll burst into flames and die if you go out there so the people live in this strip between the day and the night and there are cities in it and time and how you measure it is a thing right all true but to read this it sounds like it's going to be a war book where you know one the chosen one rises up and smites everyone and it isn't that nope so i would say that if i had not had you recommend it to me and i had read this little blurb on goodreads i would have it would be a different book than i thought it was going to be but it was a different book than i thought it was going to be anyway um so how would you describe it i think Here's something that struck me about it, is that often, as a genre, science fiction books are plot-driven. I mean, you can't write a good science fiction book unless you're deeply involved with the characters, but it's the stuff that happens 
in the book that moves the book forward. Um, uh, we arrive on a planet and we fight the local monsters and we, or we pew pew against the space, other ship doing space the same. fleet of the other civilization, or we are fully immersed in planet political dynamics. And this book is about mostly about people who don't have the extremes of power. They tend not to be in charge. Uh, and their actions may or may not have a definitive effect on the course of human history on the planet. And we don't tend to see the wars. So it's really more about the characters and their relationships with each other or their own journeys of discovery about themselves or their society or their planet or their feelings and their yeah. pers their personal issues and traumas and histories. It's almost like a, like a literary novel with another planet and strange creatures. Yes. And snuggling. I mean, yes. Tell me about this snuggling. Because I have to say, the whole time I was reading, I'm like, you know... Lisa thinks this is a very cozy, snuggly book, and I find it extremely disturbing throughout. <laughs> I mean, it was. Okay, it so I knew that was coming. Yeah. <laughs> so my prepared answer to that, um, I think, is that all my life I have been a traditional romance novel reader, and I still am, but as I got less married and more interested in the, like the human relationships that I had with other adults outside of marriage, mm -hmm. not like marriage type ones, just human type ones. I looked for books that reflected or modeled or challenged those relationships. And so this book does all of that, but also with aliens, which is of course a bonus. bonus. Um, so it like romance novels are just so predictive, predictably plot driven comfort plot driven because like you know those two people are going to end up together uh -huh. and in this book over and over and over there's relationships where you think oh that's what their that's what their relationship is right now and that's where they think it might go and this is where it actually went and this is how they feel about that and then they continue to have to have some sort of relationship to survive but it's never ideal and it's never perfect and it's never idealized or if it is, then that's totally crushed. <laughs> and ultimately, there's some snuggling. And well, the there, snuggling there is. is still the good parts for me. But there was a lot to learn about people and characters and character development beyond that. I, I can go with that. And there is some snuggling because there's no difference between day and night. There's just always twilight or, or whatever. Right. Always the state of in-betweenness. People have to decide when to sleep. And the people in this book, there's kind of four main characters. You have Sophie and Mouth, who the chapters trade off point of view from those two people. And uh, Alyssa and Bianca. So, And Sophie and Bianca have a complicated relationship. And Mouth and Alyssa have a complicated relationship. And... These people do, you know, 
I kind of liked it because, you know, I tend to skip over the, the naughty bits of books. Right. And I this like book that does not exactly have naughty bits. Does not have naughty bits. That's right. But like they, they, you love this person and you go to sleep together at the same time in the cozy little sleeping pod. Um, but there's never like an explicit statement of, of traditional romantic love between these people. Right. The intimacy is like in the sleeping. Yeah. The intimacy in the sleeping and in the, the sharing of history with this person, I guess. And being awake at the same time Time, also. Yeah. But it's, but then they'll, you never can decide, or at least I can never decide whether like mouth and Alyssa are romantic partners or just people who are committed to each other in a loving relationship. Right. And, and what, how in the world they define loving relationship. Right. And there are, when people, I, there are people in this book who are married to other people in this book who have traditional are. family units. There are. So. We mostly don't see them. No. I was thinking like there's, what is his name? Ahmad Ali. Mm-hmm. The, who they stay with in one of the cities. Um, yeah. So I feel like before we get into like, I know we both marked a lot of spots in this book. We so did. And there's a lot of a lot of uh, themes or things to talk about. I did want to give like a primer on characters and places. Yes. So the planet's name is January and it has been colonized at some point in the relatively distant past of it and in the far future of us by people from Earth who came in a mothership and went down to the planet. Um, and why they would pick this planet is beyond me. I'm like, people, surely somewhere we can find a better planet than this. Um, and maybe not. <laughs> maybe not. And there are two main cities. The book starts, and I'm sure I've misspelled this in the notes, but whatever, uh, starts in a city of Ziophant. Did you listen to this book? The audio book said Ziophant. Ziophant. I think. Okay, Ziophant. So, because I couldn't find the audiobook of this, and I'm so jealous you have an audiobook. Um, I just bought it. There you go. That's my um, personal splurge. I was like, how does my big library system not have this on audio? I was outraged. So, there's City of Ziophant. It's the first city that we're in, and it is um, the home of Sophie and Bianca, and Mouth and Alyssa arrive there as smugglers. And it is a city that is has reacted to the lack of a day-night cycle by instituting bells and alarms and rituals and rules about who does what when. Everybody's going to sleep at the same time. Everybody's going to work at the same time. Everybody's going to eat at the same time. With This is the rituals that we follow. And even their language that they speak, Xiophant language, is all related to the exact definitions of time and relationships. And where, so they've responded to this by extreme regulation. Eventually, our characters leave Ziophant and travel across the space between to Argello, which is a city that has no rules whatsoever. Everybody does whatever they want, whenever they want. Um, and you just kind of make your own rules. And it is Alyssa's hometown, right? Yes. And Mouth doesn't have a hometown. She was born to people who traveled back and forth on the road all the time. 
um, additional people and stuff that we have. There's the city in the middle of the night that the title is about, which is a city way on the night side of the planet that is run by uh, fauna of the planet. Well phrased. Yes. Um, who are sometimes referred to as crocodiles and sometimes referred to as gelet, depending on how you look at them. Um, and the only other people I had written down is, that were important to me were Hernan, who is a guy who runs a like a tea parlor inside Xiophant where you go to kind of get away from timeliness. Yes. And rest. Um, I love him. Yes. And Barney, who used to be a traveler, they call them the citizens, like Mouth. All those, all their, all their people are dead except Mouth and Barney. And he runs a restaurant in um, Argello that's open whenever it needs to be open. It has very fluid hours and provides, I guess, structure or reliability to those people in the same way that the Elysian parlor back in Xiophant that's run by Hernan provides lack of structure or timeliness to people. So they're mirrors of each other. Yeah, great compliments to each other. Right. And those are the people that I have and the places that I have. Is there anybody you want to add to that? I don't it's think complicated. So. It's complicated. Uh, and my feeling overall about the book is that the first 20% of it took me a long time to get into it um, because I thought it was going to be a more typical action heist book, although I do love heist books. But I was like, oh, okay. But then it, it keeps changing all the time. So every time you settle into it, it does a different thing. Um, you think it's going to be a heist book and then it's a road book and then it's a, a Outlanders in a Strange City book and then it's a invasion war book road book again and then it's a outlander book again and then it's a revolution book again so yeah that was like the best plot summary ever <laughs> that's my plot folks there you know everything the first time i read it i was reading it at the same time as a different friend and all the time i was like uh i want to talk about this book but i don't know what part you're on so i can't even say why i want to talk about it because who knows if we're even reading the same book anymore? Yeah. Because it changed so often that I could be completely into a different book because I'd turned three pages or read I, another paragraph. Or like, like there was a point where I thought, oh, the Illyrian parlor is going to be the heart of this book. And then it disappears right? in a book entirely and you never see it again or most of its characters again. Um, but even now you're like, oh, but that could have been the heart of the book. It could have been the heart of the book. So this book has some world building that's pretty impressive in yeah, my mind. It is. Because at any point, any of those things could have been a whole book. And instead, we just we just get them a little for how they interact with our character at that time. Right. But they feel like they're fully developed enough that we could have just stayed there. Yeah. The characters are moving through a big landscape. And, and all the parts of it feel like attention has been given to them. Yeah. Yes. Um, More thoughts? 
something that disturbed me for a little while and then I grew to kind of really like it is like right at the beginning of a book there's a the book there's a note that the book is translated from a different language into language we can understand better right and that some of the words might not translate correctly I guess yeah um and it kind of drove me crazy for a little while um, to use words, the words we, we're using the words that we have to describe things we can't imagine. It's like all the characters have names that you can understand as opposed to whatever weird names they would have in their own language. But then trying to, like in Xiaophant, they have these fried cakes. Is that right? And they talk about how you have to eat them a certain way or they fall apart. Um, and stuff, and I and it drove me crazy. To they would have bags of cake batter, and I'm like, I don't even understand what this is supposed to look like for me. And then I kind of got over it after a while. Like, oh, this is a, a sweet thing, or a, I always tell my children that there's every culture has a fried bread product, and they're always good. You know, right? And always they, eat the fried bread. Product. Always eat the fried bread product. It does. You know, it's formed changes depending on what it is some of them are sweeter and some of them are more you know crunchy or whatever but they're always quality fried bread product There's, you can't go wrong with it um whatever form it's taking and so i decided well this is the fried bread product uh and delicious and then later on there's these cactus pork crisps i'm like okay uh so i grew to kind of like it and animals would have names like the gillet they call them crocodiles but they don't look anything like an earth crocodile would look and in the illyrian parlor there's a marmot but it clearly looks nothing like a marmot would look but um, it's just the translation the of translation the... of it from that into words we're understanding um and the in bars drinks have names um that are just almost like random pulled names and I ended up liking that, although it took me a while to get used to it. Because we're used to, I mean, I'm used to certainly in fantasy novels in particular, I feel like really, really craving the luxury of the audiobook where somebody else will pronounce all the hard words for me. Right. And, and because, they'll get the crazy words because they're things we can't imagine. And right. This is and using instead, regular words for things we can't imagine. Yes. Um, I had a four-year-old over at my house last weekend, and he looked out my back porch, and he said, oh, I see the crocodile, and my kids were freaking out, and then <laughs> we realized he saw a four-inch long lizard, Ah, there you and go. I know called those it a lizards. crocodile, right? He was like, <laughs> yeah. I know that that's a crocodile, like I know that that thing, um, and when my kids corrected him, he just looked at them like, your correction is not important. I showed you the thing. <laughs> it's, and it, you got to submit lizards and crocodiles are roughly. Right. We'd been looking at birds. We'd been looking, you know, we'd been looking at very, very different things out there. And uh -huh. he saw the crocodile. There you go. So, and of course, nobody appreciated my city in the middle of the night reference that I tried to make because everybody was under 13. Well, but there you go. But it was there. That idea of the language and what it evokes for us and. If we realized that that four-inch-long lizard was sentient, we would give it a more appropriate name. Yes. Probably. But a name that speaks to how it sees itself instead of how That would be the most appropriate. Right. Which is what she tries to do. Uh, Sophie gives them the name Gellet because 
she's trying to find a name of how they would call themselves as opposed to how she looks at them and sees them. Cause the, Which is lovely. Yeah, because the Gellet are like super scary and also, in my opinion, kind of creepy. Um, they have these... Uh, Tentacles? Moist, warm... Fingers? Cilia? Fingers, things that come... And they want to touch your face with them all the time. And I'm like, no. A thousand tongues on my face? This is never going to happen. So I would fall into the category of people in this book who, if they try to communicate with the Gellet, go insane. Um, yes. And they have long tentacles, yeah, out their back and stuff. I don't know. They're really creepy uh, looking. But gentle and good, probably. So, and warm. It kind of reminded me of... Uh, it's been a long time since I read... Um, a Miracle in Time. Wrinkle in no, Time? Wrinkle in Time. Thank you. Thank you. The it's been time. A, my mom read oh, it to us out yeah. loud in third grade, and yeah, that's the only there's, time there's I've ever like read it. a big hairy monster in there that wraps the main character up and warms her. And it's like a blind thing, too. It doesn't speak or see, but it provides her comfort and warmth and love. Yeah, I feel like the Gellet are part of the snuggling in this book. Yeah, they're, part, they're snuggly, but creepy at the same time. With big giant pinchers yes. and weird icky tongues that want to touch you all over your face. Um, which I don't like to be touched much. So I was like, ah! So, yeah. Uh, if she was going for, like, your reaction of feeling creeped out while also recognizing that these this is a loving, sharing thing, then she got me. She did a good job there. Um, so, more things to talk about in this book. Do you want to talk about trauma or relationships? Those or... are the same. No, I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, or uh, fitting into a community or building community or. I mean, those are all the things I liked about this book. Yeah, I figured the whole time I was reading it. I'm like, oh, yeah, I can see why this is Lissa's book. This is such a Lissa book. Yeah. Um, so I will say that uh, I had been trying to read a lot of self-help books around the time I read this book. And about kind of all the same things you just said that are those topics. Um, and that this book was, you know, like kind of better than the self-help books because it was more real in its fictions than the self-help books, which always seem really, really fake in their examples. Whereas somehow this book seemed more real in its examples, even though, you know, it was set on January and also Gellet and... Yeah, you know. Well, I, I was trying to decide, and I pulled several quotes from the book to decide whether the characters in this book give each other a lot of advice about how to find happiness or your yeah. place. And I don't know that those are always on the same page. And I was wondering which one you thought was best advice so i'm gonna throw several at you here ready yes uh, um so barney the ex traveler citizen says to mouth about the travelers every community has a need that it cannot meet in itself the more they say they do not need us the harder we must try to become what they need most and then he also says a big thing in the citizens was we were all responsible for each other. Sometimes that meant that anybody who wasn't us could eat shit, but we tried to be generous and the interdependence was part of the teachings. 
And to which Mouth responds, so I should go and find some people who are bigger losers than I am and try to lift them up. I loved... And I got more. Oh, and okay. Mouth says, I need to learn to belong to other people the way everyone else seems to, with one hand in the wind. And Mouth says, regarding the citizens and the gullet, you might mistake under... Because oh, the citizens accidentally hurt the gullet but didn't know they had done it. But the gullet responded to that anyway so it says you might mistake understanding for forgiveness but if you did then the forgiven wrong would catch you off guard like a cramp just when you reached for generosity um and maybe yes okay we'll stop there so i'm not sure that all those are in any agreement with each other no that's what i love about them uh-huh so right? which one do you think because is right is it is it understanding and forgiveness and and not being the same thing? Or is it trying to be generous? Or is it... Yeah. People in this book are wrong so many times. And that's kind of why I love it. Like, you try a thing, you try understanding, or you try forgiveness, or you try revolution, or you try all the different things... Like you try to put yourself out there for a person or you try to reject the same person to save yourself and all of the things are sort of ultimately both right and wrong. That's what I liked about the book. It was complicated and it said, hey, there's not a certain way you can be that's right or wrong. I liked all those quotes. Well, I was wondering like, because I assumed when I was reading it that these would be quotes that would speak to you. Oh, they did. Um, and like, they all did, though. So, but it's, it's like a self-help book. Which of them was most useful to you? It depends on which problem I'm thinking about in my life when <laughs> I read the quote, obviously. <laughs> and then the thing I love bo- most is you read a little further and you're like, oh, but when I was thinking about that problem and then I read, well, I mean, I sometimes my brain would immediately push back on something. Like, every community has a need it cannot meet in itself the more they say they do not need us the harder we must try to become what they need most like I thought on that one for a long time because I go to a lot of community meetings that talk about um what is that phrase um I can't remember the like summary part of the phrase but it means like don't make decisions without the people there at the table with you helping make decisions that affect them but that's but there's a really short version but that is maybe interdependence or collaboration, but it's not becoming what people need most. When I read that line, I railed against it because if you spend all of your time trying to become what you think other people need you to be, that's not healthy for you. Uh, And a lot of people, I thought in this book, spent a lot of their time trying to become what they thought other people needed the student to be. I need you. People all the time in this book will say, I need you to be there for me. I need you to become a, a gun runner, smuggler, partner, politician, mercenary, bodyguard. bodyguard, because that's, I need you to become what I want you to be. And it doesn't tend to bring anybody happiness in this or relief from their own misery, their own feelings of guilt about things that happened or... Um, doesn't heal the wounds of their own past to try to alter themselves into something that somebody else should be. 
wants them to be. They think somebody else wants them to be. Exactly. But and we see it play out with characters that we care about. Right. But this is also in counterpoint in the book to this concept of, of time. Of because there's no way to measure time on this planet. Is the cycle of daily living important or is history important or not? Um, on the way from Earth to January, the Earth people on board the ship, like engaged in wars with each other all the way there, which is kind of amazing. On the ships. On the yeah. ship. And there was a, a massacre of the people from the contingent from Nagpur, which is a city in India. Um, and people never talk about this massacre, this, this crime from the past that affects them. And one of the characters says, we can't focus on building a better future if we spend all of our time agonizing about things that happened a long time ago. And that's in contrast with the Gellet who almost have a shared consciousness, um, and they trade memories back and forth with the memories are something that everybody has the memory. All they do is concentrate on, on all the renewing things. memory and all the things that happened in the past as a way of preserving knowledge or understanding of how far they have come. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, There's a lot of really good opposites in this book. There are. Everything has a mirror to itself. Um, but in terms of, you know, don't focus. You can't make a better future if you're always stuck about what's happening in the past that's something i think a lot about in my own life and in the life of planet earth um because on the two sides of that coin you have like our own country's need to grapple with crap we have done um, yeah. particularly with race relations in our country and you can't in our need to not brush under the carpet what we have done or how things have gone but also our need to move to a better future that we build together and how we do that. And I think a lot about South Africa, which has come, I always say, you know, as crap as America has been at some stuff, look how long, how far we have come in the span of my own lifetime. We've done an amazing job of moving forward compared to say European countries, which can get bogged down in this stuff for 500 years sometimes, you know, so we're doing good, but we have got a long way to go. But I look at South Africa, which, well into my lifetime had institutionalized racism uh, its entire self was built around that but their ability to move forward has been astonishing and their process of after a, the apartheid government fell there were scenes in South Africa where people would come forward and kind of confess their sins these are these are things that I did that were wrong and receive true forgiveness from other people, not hiding their actions, but this concept of, of forgiveness and understanding be two different things, but that forgiveness is necessary. Like that. Which is amazing. Yeah. So they need to like look at your past, but also move forward by making peace with your past or attempting to, to recognize the hurt that you've given and not eat and ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness, the, the ability to give forgiveness to people who've wronged you. 
Um, so I thought she had a lot to say, you know, about us, <laughs> even though it's yeah. 3,500 years in the future, people is still people. Um, Which is what sci-fi is great at, I think. Yeah. Although like, you, oh, look, I wrote a book about a tidally locked planet. Yeah. It's in the future. And I always kind of hope by 3,500 years, maybe we will have evolved intellectually, which we don't hear. But if I'm writing a book now, I need it to speak to people of my time. So, yeah. Right. And I think this does, right? Because we look at this and we're talking about American race relations and we're talking about, or we will talk about climate change, maybe. Yeah. And, you know, we're looking at things that happen here um, and at all the levels, right? Like I can read this very personally about my personal human relationships with 10 other people but I can also look at it at the community level and you're bringing in a you know American history European history African history colonial history like it's it's working it's working on a lot of levels yes so I liked that the quotes that you read one I liked all those quotes they're all conflictual because this is not a book that you can rally around one particular quote from because one particular quote is not going to be enough for us to rally around. We're going to have to re-examine our thinking over and over and over. Yeah. It's a very thinky book. It is a very (laughs) thinky book. So what other thinky things about it would you like to to, uh, tell me all about? Tell you all about? Well... Or discuss it. um, I... Mm, all the things really but I really liked the parts where within a page or a paragraph everything could change I liked that it continued to stay that unexpected um I was looking for a really good snuggling scene this morning um and then I remembered that like one of the one of the good snuggling scenes where it was actually Bianca and Sophie um out in the out in the traveling on the road between the two cities and they finally get up into the little snuggling pouch to do their sleeping of the watch shift um and it it doesn't go well and Sophie tries to say something thoughtful and touching and Bianca says let's just sleep I don't want to talk about it and then they wake up to somebody on the road being killed by a scary monster. Yeah. Yes, um, chopped in half as a matter of fact. Yeah. Like and yeah. everyone's traumatized and and then it moves on, and I loved that the pacing of the book didn't give anybody time to process anything because it felt really real. It didn't feel, it didn't feel to me like tricks because to me it felt, oh yeah, that is, that's how real life narration works. Like you don't get time to process your feelings for this person. You get a moment to try, it doesn't work, and then more things happen. So okay. I just, I liked the pacing of the book for those kinds of specific reasons. Okay. Um, yes, what do you think? So, well, we've got novel pacing and we've got yeah. relationship issues here. And I'm trying to decide which, which one of those I'd, I'd care to, to respond to first. You can uh, respond to both. Well, on a pacing front, as you know, it took me 100,000 years to read this book. Uh, my library copy of it is, I think, now 11 days overdue. So I might need to take out a loan to pay, pay my nickel a day fine. Because um, it takes forever to read it. Yeah. Which is not to say that it's a slow-paced book, but it is a book that has less dialogue than any book I've read in a long time. It has huge yeah. swaths of, of exposition uh, and thought 
and mulling of things and description and then little snippets of dialogue. The people in this will go pages without talking to each other. And that means there's less white space on a page, which takes more time to read generally. And then it is full of changes of, of thought or, or mood or uh, material pretty quickly. So you have to pay attention to it all the time. You can't skim it. Unlike those no. romance novels that you love so much. And, and, oh, uh, they're very skimmable. Yeah, yeah, heck yeah. You can skip 50 pages. It's cool. Like, yeah, it's cool. Um, it's like going to the grocery store during a baseball game. When you come back, maybe something minor has changed, you know, unless, you know, my poor team, in which case they <gasps> scored Can I tell you a diversion story? Sure. Last night I went to the grocery <laughs> store, and I had the baseball game on in my headphones in my ear, and I was going up and down the aisles. I was, like, very clearly, like single woman wearing fancy work clothes at 7 p.m. in the grocery store. Right, alone. right. And uh, I kept making eye contact with this, like, guy who was grocery shopping. And then one time as I turned the corner, I accidentally caught him with this, like, amazing huge smile on my face. And he responded with an amazing huge smile. And I wanted to be, like, a uh, stand-up triple. That was a stand-up triple that I'm <laughs> smiling about. I'm not flirting with you, but the baseball right? is really like, good. Lead, lead off stand-up triple. That's what that smile is. But I I didn't stop to tell him because that would just be even worse. <laughs> I just kept going, and I, like, well, lingered in an you aisle. Probably, you probably brought a, brought a little joy into his life. Oh, I think I did. Feeling good about himself. Like, yes, these jeans do look good on me. And then he can go. Right. Yeah, but like it was, he was not. I don't think a Cardinals fan, so it was not yeah. going to work out. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. So, so pacing. So pacing. The, the lack of dialogue and stuff, and but the quick changes. And I felt like the movie, the novel, read faster as I went along, except for my need to stop and put a million post-it notes in it uh, and write notes. Um, like I grew to care as I grew to care more and more and more about these people. But that brings me to the relationships section. Uh, yes. There was one of the four main characters that I did not like, and I did not like her from the get-go. And she did mm -hmm. not disappoint me. So this is spoiler, which is Bianca. Oh, I mean, everything has been spoilers. But yeah, yes, oh, yeah, Bianca. Everything's, everything's spoilers. And yet, you should go read it anyway, because you can't understand it unless you really read it. Um, Bianca is the, the sparkling, beautiful kind of popular girl when at the beginning of the book they're both in university she and Sophie in Ziafant and Sophie has this kind of crush on Bianca Bianca's everything Huge she crush. thinks she wants to be or admire everything that's admirable but that relationship bugged me from the beginning and to me it was the definition of what unhealthy relationships look like yes in that Sophie is always secondary to Bianca. Bianca's feels are somehow more important in it or more valid in it. And Sophie is made to, um, I mean, she gets executed um, right at the beginning of the book or they try to execute her right at the beginning of the book. She is punished for Bianca's flaws. Uh, and Bianca lets her do it and yeah. continues to do this. But up here on page 200, um, Sophie was trying to explain her own pain or loss to Bianca. So I can find it here. And, um, she's, she's, Sophie's trying to explain how her, you know, execution affected her and the pain and the PTSD that she has from being hauled out of town by guards and thrown out into the cold to die. And 
how that has affected her and her choices. And all Bianca has to say is, is okay, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, it happened to me, too. I had to watch them, you know, take you away and kill you. And I thought, Bianca, she's a gaslighter. She's yeah. totally self-absorbed. She is every red flag in a relationship. Bianca displays that red flag in a relationship. And poor Sophie continues to love her um, throughout, like, all of this. It continues to sacrifice herself for this person and yeah um sublimate herself for this person uh and that was really painful for me to watch i kept thinking sophie had finally turned a corner in recognizing that this person although you love them just isn't good for you or indeed anyone they're just not a good person um and it takes her i don't know that she ever really recovers um from it but um, and but the other sort of pseudo romantic or loving relationship in this is Mouth and Alyssa, who <laughs> I felt, you know, they're it's not that they're problem free. They certainly have a lot of problems in a relationship and a, and a constant questioning of one, questioning the commitment of the other, uh, and they're suffering. But they stick with each other. Um, and they recognize the other person's flaws. But there's a scene quite near this, the first scene in, in this book, where they're in Argello and they're having problems. And Mouth goes to a place she doesn't particularly enjoy and buys some pork cactus pork crisps, which she herself does not like, and hurries to bring them home to Alyssa while they're still warm. Because Alyssa really loves them. Um, so she's saying here... I know I've done wrong or we're not in a, a good place or I'm, I'm worried about us, but I know that you love this thing and I'm bringing this thing to you to help you feel better. And when she gets home, Alyssa has imported this professor from the local university who is a specialist in the history or philosophy of the citizens, which is something that Mouth is deeply concerned with or questioning about. So she, Alyssa has brought this professor as a gift to mouth to say here is a person who has knowledge in, in that thing that you're questioning, who can maybe be someone that you can talk to better than you can talk to me or can, can understand you better or give you understanding better than I can. And to me, that was a much healthier and much more loving relationship where you're saying each of them is saying, this isn't about me. This is when well, this is about you. You know, I recognize yeah. my own flaws in this relationship and I'm bringing you something that I help them make you better either physically or mentally or emotionally um so that's what i thought about kind of relationships in this book everybody has a troubled relationship but one of them has a truer firmer basis or despite their damage people who are acting in a healthy way toward the other person um so i was reading for mouth and Alyssa and rooting against bianca and sophie yeah, and kind of from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah, it was lovely. And then I was like constantly worried like that thing, relationships would flip-flop yes. as they started meeting each other. And I was like, no, no, no I don't no, want to no, mess. No, no. I, I was, don't want to mess this up. Yeah. Like I don't want to love triangle. I just <laughs> I was deeply worried that Sophie and Mouth would end up together uh for a while. That you know that somehow they're supposed to come together because of this anchor banter thing I think we're going to discuss. That somehow yeah. they would become a couple. And I was like, no, Mouth and Alyssa 
are as good for each other as anybody can be for those people, you know. Um, that's a bond. So I have this nonsensical post-it note in which I tried to list what kinds of things this was a good self-help book for learning more okay. about. all right. But it just, when I look at it, I'm like, oh, well, those are just really words. But so if you wanted self-help books on the topic of friendships, love, betrayal, boundaries, trust, and people using each other for good or using each other for bad, I think this is a good self-help book for you <laughs> those things. Yeah, it is true. There, there you go. That's also a good plot summary of this book. Uh, because it illustrates all of those things really, truly. Yeah. I think. Yeah. On an honest, in an honest way, you don't often get to see in shallowly written, plot-driven traditional romance novels because they don't really go those places. Yeah. People don't hurt each other enough in traditional romance novels to have the level of depth that this book has. Yeah. I think so. And it, there's something that, that Barney says in it. Because um, the citizens are, again, conflicted and you wonder whether the citizens have it right or don't have it right. Uh, but he says something that spoke to me, um, which he, the citizens are supposed to be on a journey, kind of like a Buddhist journey in a way of, of balance, achieving balance. And he says, the, he claims to have reached it. This whole concept, he says, of being able to look into the night without losing your will. That thing they taught of having evening and morning inside you so you could reconcile the extremes within yourself. And I thought that was the most balanced thing any human in this book says. Because that's really, to me, as a person, that's kind of my goal, is to have, not turn away from the evening or look too hard into the morning, but to to stay on the middle path and, and hold those things inside me and recognize that the morning and the evening are both inside of me and finding balance between them to allow me to go forward down the road, um, I guess. And I, and I would say relationship-wise in this book, those are the the sign of a good relationship in this book is when it, the balance that is there with Mouth and Alyssa and is missing with Sophie and Bianca, the terrible Bianca. Oh, uh, Bianca. Who I don't like at all. No. 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 Not at all. And like the opening, I mean, not opening quote, but the one I put on Instagram yesterday from Bianca. Yeah. Uh, she's like trying to coach... Well, she's just not really listening to Sophie, even at the beginning. And she's, um, they're talking about relationships and boys. And Bianca says, but I'm sure you'll get over it once you meet the right guy. You'll see. And like, for me, like right at the beginning of the book, I was like, oh, so like not only does Bianca not see that Sophie likes her, but she thinks that that boys will solve it all. And that that's how Sophie will solve her problem is with a boy. With a boy. And this book's going to be interesting because well, I don't think it's going to go that way. Yeah. And it, I felt that Bianca always had a, an understanding that Sophie, you know, like, liked her. And Bianca's con throughout the book, periodically, Bianca will have a new boyfriend and she's always kissing that boyfriend in front of Sophie. Um, which to me was just another example of, you know, I'm pretending that I don't see that you have these feels and now I'm going to twist the knife a little bit more. And each boyfriend that Bianca has, she's using that person too. She's, yeah. I mean, she's always using that person for her own self-game. It's a multi-layer show. To reinvent herself into what she thinks will get her 
what she wants. So, yeah. She's a piece of work. She is a piece of work. But a well-portrayed one, because you can oh, yeah. hate her on, like, oh, yeah. a lot of oh, levels. Yeah. A lot of levels you can hate her in so many different ways. And and I tried hard to feel for her um, as somebody who maybe is trapped in her own way in terms of having been brought up to believe that you need to perform in certain ways in order to be successful in the society that she's in. She's supposed to be a bright and sparkling party girl when they're at university because that's what she's, that's her role. But she comes home from the parties and she's tired or empty or unhappy. Um, but um, I've known people like that. And I didn't like them either. So I had trouble... <laughs> Right. Working myself up to um, feeling uh, sympathy, if not empathy, for Bianca. I just don't like her. I think that she's a character in a lot of other stories, and she's not always portrayed as honestly as, in yeah, a lot of other yeah. stories. She's beautifully nuanced and, and complete um, here. Yeah. So. Yes. And it lets you... It lets you see her really well in the other stories and in real life, that character, that person who is that, I don't even know all the right words to describe her, but um, who is using people, who is a narcissist, who is just like drawing people into their spotlight to advance their own thing, but then truly insecure and doesn't have a real vision and doesn't know the right things to do and is frustrated that their plans aren't magically working out. Yeah. It's a mess. She's a mess. So but her face is on all the money. Her face is on all the money, but the eyes are shifty. Yeah. Um, Great so, metaphors. <laughs> so the other, the other thing you wanted to talk about is this concept of anchor banter. Yeah. Explain to the world what anchor banter is and why you want to talk about it. Well, I love that it's a thing throughout the book that's misunderstood a lot of the book. Um, And then it's this concept of having somebody out there who's like your jinx. Um, And when they do explain it, they explain it different ways. And then it's clear that everybody still understands it a little differently. Um, But in one of the explanations, they say, um, once you know who your anchor banter is, this person who keeps showing up in your life for whatever reason, Um, you can either, you can figure out why this person is connected to you, or you can join forces with them and cause trouble for everyone else. Um, Right. They're going to be the destruction and the making of you. Right. Um, Which I just thought was, in a book that continually redefined what human relationships could be, and what the point of them could be, and how nothing was going to be a traditional romance, and nothing was going to be you know, at least of the characters that we see, because of course there are, um, you know, traditional um, yep. men and women who are getting married on the edges of these of this story, and they're not judged or misjudged, I don't think. Um, but they're just not the main characters of this story. Um, this anchor banter, I don't know, it was just like it gave a name to this weird relationship you might have out in the world. And it gave a name to something else you might be looking for. Yeah. Besides but, a s- but I, sleep buddy or a road buddy yeah. or a whatever. I did whatever. like this concept that this could be, on the face of it, the worst person. Yeah. Um, they're bringing nothing but trouble to your life. But they're also maybe, if you work it right, 
the person who allows you to become that thing that you couldn't become without them. Uh, yeah. So. Yeah. So if you're looking for who your anchor banter is, if this is real, <laughs> then are you looking for somebody who has made you better? Or are you looking for somebody who is ruining your life and then trying to figure out why you haven't yet figured out how they're making you better? Right? It's a good thinker. So what do you think? I don't know. Because if you could only have one anchor banter, right? If you have, because that's kind of, I was like, anchor banter was the most monogamous thing in this book. Like if there's just just one, that one person. You're one, then who is your jinx? I don't know. It's a good thinking. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good yeah, thinking. I'll think on that. Right? I'll think on that. Uh, and then it's all back on you. You can figure out why this person is connected to you, or you can join forces, forces with them and cause trouble for everyone else. Right? Then it like puts it back on you to like, if there is somebody out there ruining your life, why haven't you <laughs> figured out how to turn that around? It's such a tricky book. It is. It's, it's, Except periodically when I was reading it, it was like, I can see that this being a book that people read over and over again, um, like your annual reading of The City in the Middle of the Night, because it's going to mean different things to you depending on where you are, you know? Yeah. Um, Different things. And what problems you're encountering and what newspaper articles you just read. Yeah. Yeah. It's all in there. And it's... But the other thing, I, it's because structurally it's so unusual, um, it kind of reminded me on the writing front of when I read Lincoln in a Bardo by uh, George Saunders. Because, have you read Lincoln in a Bardo? I started the audiobook and realized oh, I think I need mm, the print book. You need the print book. But yeah. it's, it bends the form of the novel so far that it's barely recognizable as a novel. Uh, it's just extremely different. And as a writer, that's not something that you're allowed to do until you've already been George Sanders, until you're already recognized as a master of your genre. Then, you know, or he's a short story writer usually. This was right. Lincoln and was his first novel. But you're not, I mean, you can write it, but you can't sell it. Unless you're, you already have a track record, um, and then people will let you do what you want. And I think this is like that too. She already has a track record. Charlie Jane Anders already has a track record that allows her to do this book that's extremely unusual, and it, it's a wonderful book. But society is not going to give you permission to write this one until you've done it. And I'm sure it's the same in other things too. In movies, you probably have to, you know, I'm sure you have to make the the big budget, uh, you know, whatever movie before you're allowed to make your heartfelt um, movie that speaks bigger truths or themes. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah. So um, you got to put your time in the trenches before they let you write books like this. So do you have to be su- commercially successful? I think putting so. Your time I mean, in the trenches. And that that's like a big question about traditional publishing and indie publishing and stuff, you can write whatever you want anymore and indie publish it yourself, but that doesn't mean anybody's going to read it. Um, 
people might, there's all people are like, oh, you'll find your audience, your people are out there, which I'm sure is true. But in the noise, background noise of book publishing, how do your people find you? Um, and if you want certainly to be a, a major publisher book, which this one is, although I don't know which one, but it's obviously so, because you can buy it in bookstores. Um, I'm sure it's Tor, isn't it? Um, I think so. Yeah, I think it's Tor. Anyway, I'm sure before yeah, Tor is... Tor. Yeah, Tor. Before Tor is going to... It has Tor book written all over it. Uh, literally and figuratively. Um, I couldn't see because I have post-it notes all over my <laughs> copy. Yeah, it's a Tor book. I'm like, oh, it's got to be a Tor book. Um, but before Tor is going to let you write this book, I'm sure you need a track record of commercial success and people knowing who you are on a platform and stuff, after which people will give your book a, ch a chance. Um, but if you were unpublished, person with no track record and you sent this in i don't know that they would publish it because they wouldn't get very far into it no not very far into it because it is a, a literary novel and also a science fiction novel um it's kind of like you have to have the right reader for that or have somebody you really trust hand it to you right yep and say here this is what this person has done you know they're a good writer i trust you you trust me let's do this thing to make this book um and I would love to know how many copies it has sold and stuff like that. But who knows? I'm sure it's been a good thing. I mean, I know several people who've read it now. Um, yes. So that's my thought. But did we hand it to all of them? Yes. Maybe. I mean, well, that's, I mean, hand selling of books uh, is like a thing. Yeah. So I have the library copy again right now because my copy is with somebody else right now. Yeah, because I handed it to them and said, I think, you no, know, I think you should read this here. I will let you use my copy, which I'm doing more and more. Yeah. I didn't You're used so to be a book loaner. I know I'm not. I'm, I still hesitate to loan books to anybody because you might not get it back. So you probably in your amazing, I'm looking, I'm Googling, you probably in your amazing um, librarian superpowers could probably find out for me generally um, how many copies of this is sold and, and if I looked hard I could probably find out what the initial print run was too so um, like that. well anyway that's just you know that's just our arcane uh, nerd, writer reader nerd uh, conversation I think it's also <laughs> interesting to add to sales data how much people are still talking about it it came out yeah. like in February how long is the tale on it Right, there's buzz before. I mean, enough buzz that like I was totally first on my library's waiting list for it. Um, and there's buzz when it comes out. And but then there's buzz like people are still like tagging the author on Twitter yeah. basically but every day. But there's not to say oh, I just discovered this amazing right. I was thing. Say, Thank there was you. Not so much buzz about it that say I had ever heard of it before you told me to go read it. And I don't have a good perspective on like the before because. I wasn't really, this is what started my following authors on Twitter experiment. So <laughs> yeah. I don't have it before. Um, but the um, the publisher of Tor and I think that maybe the agent for this author um, are like now my new, how I used to be all about um, Scholastic Teen yeah. and David Levithan. Yeah. Like, I think this is my new thing. Yeah. Um, the agent on this one and my other new favorite are both Dong Wan, and he has a publishing oh. is hard newsletter that I subscribed to. And uh, like in the most cheesy way possible, I have subscribed to his newsletter. Do you like, do that? 
I think he's my new David Levithan. I think he's my new, like, the things that this person chooses to devote their time to as an editor, I am probably interested in reading. And I would I would tack Tor itself onto that, um, if you're into science fiction in particular. If Tor is producing it or interested in it, that's like a stamp of approval in, in my yeah. book. They're do, making good choices and risky, interesting choices. Um, and they're doing a great job of articulating their choices. Yeah. Why they why they did it, why they think you'll like it, what they think is interesting or different or relevant about it. Yeah. So there you go. Well, so. they're doing all those things, right? How do we do them right? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so, uh, I guess we sit at the the seats, feet of the masters and learn the whole Burkean parlor scenario where you, you know, go to the party and you... When you first arrive at the party, you sit and, and listen to what the people who've been there for a while are saying and doing, and you learn by them, and then you slowly achieve a voice of your own. Yes. And you can listen to the author directly on her podcast. Yes. Which I just started experimenting with, like, last week. It's called Our Opinions Are Correct. So this is me going on the record saying, I totally was a fan of this podcast at least 10 days before it won the Hugo for best <laughs> fan cast. Well, you're an early adopter, aren't you, Lisa? I was like just barely an early adopter. <laughs> well, I didn't listen to it until you told me to listen to it, but I think I had technically downloaded a couple of episodes and maybe started listening to the first one before it won. So Early adopter. Maybe I get to counts. be an early adopter too. I get my Definitely. pin, that early adopter Definitely. pin, where I'm yes. on the pill. There yes. you go. Excellent. Um, but it, again, it's like that listening at the feet of the masters and hearing what they're into and hearing what's influencing them. Because what influences a writer is much, much broader than what actually shows up in the finished published book. Sure. And and a lot of books in, in this genre and others are, there's deep thought behind them or thematic questioning and big questions. But you can still read the book just as a casual reader for the surface story and enjoy it but there's a lot of craft and thought and philosophy that goes into it which they appear to be discussing on that podcast so yes um, although i will say as a book evangelist fail i made my dad read this book and i tried to pitch it kind of like the back of the book like dad this is about climate change and yeah which it <laughs> is like which it is but um, he was not sold on the book as a book about climate change. So I may have oversold the scientific concepts, which I thought he would be really into because he's very into reading about science and climate change. But I think this was, I think his exact words were something like, it was just too much science fiction. Yeah, it's, it's so. interesting because I've kind of thought about selling it to my mom. I have sort of half recommended it to her because she's interested in t uh, literary novels about people in relationships um oh see i think that could be a sell then. but she's totally not into crazy town science fiction fantasy stuff which i am right so it might be too fantastic for her maybe just prep her some well we'll see what we need is to make our parents read it and your dad and my mom can get in a yes. room together and do like an addendum to this podcast uh Discussing the parts that they like, whether they like this book or not, or whether they right. have raised uh, daughters who read weird junk. Yeah, that would. I think they would agree. <laughs> they have raised daughters who <laughs> read weird junk, 
and then try to convince them that it's it's really a book about science, Dad, I promise. I promise. Or, Mom, it's totally just a literary novel with an unusual setting. Well, and I finished this book the very first time, like, on a vacation with my dad and my kids. So, of course, I was, like, glowing at the end. Like, Dad, you should take this home with you. Yeah. That's interesting, because I, I, I finished reading um, Station Eleven when I was on vacation visiting my mom. And I'm like, Mom, you need to read this right away. And, of course, she loves it and has, you know, bought many copies and given them away to people who didn't bring them back. So that's why you shouldn't ever loan books to people, because people are dreadful. And they take your books and they don't bring them back. I'm going to try to get my dad to read Station Eleven. Yeah. Everybody I'm going to say, well, Marion's mom liked it. Yeah. Yeah, and mom loved it. You could just put that in there. So it says things like, I really must read that book again. So what you thinking about it? It's a good sign. There you go. So have we hashed through this one? I think so. You had me read an essay called The Moth. Oh, uh-huh. Oh, the it wasn't called The, the, the Moth, the but moth. it had the word moth. The Death the of the Moth. By Annie Dillard. Yes. Yes. Um, which I did my homework. Good. And I was... <sighs> maybe only a third to a half of the way, half of the way through the book when I had you read that essay, which is a very short essay and findable online for people who want to read it. Um, I will link it in the show notes. And um, Annie Dillard as a writer is very interested in nature and um, God, I guess. And this essay is about, um, a time when she's living by herself in a house in the Northwest and there's a spider behind her toilet that catches bugs and eats them, including moth bodies. And she recognizes what a moth body looks like because she was camping and a moth flew into her candle flame and burned to death and also transformed into a conduit, I guess, for heat and light um and in the total giving of itself became something new i guess and it's kind of a reflection on the price you need to pay i think in my opinion the price you need to pay if you want to create something new uh and i was wondering if you in reading that if you saw relationships between that and this book that we just read. Yes. I think it, yes. I'm like, you can't just and, say yes. I mean, you can. <laughs> yes. Everybody who read uh, City in the Middle of the Night should also read The Moth and also think about how what it would take to create a book like City in the Middle of the Night, but then also the characters in the book and what they're going through. Like, it worked on a couple levels for me. It did. And, um, and, and in one, one way, the, the moth that dies in this candle flame becomes transcendent and beautiful and something else. But it's also dies. I mean, it's it's gone. And right. only bits of it are left, which is sad. Um, yes. But you linked this before you got to the parts about Sophie. Well, I was already thinking about them. Um, right. I was already thinking about what what is the the pathway to completeness or sadness or dealing with the luggage that you bring with you through life? Um, um, and some of the moths around her campfire, they would just you know hit a hit a pan and leave a little bit of moth wing dust on it. 
So they've left some mark, but not the great mark that this moth that's burned to death um, leaves in terms of sacrifice. Uh, sacrifice is more complete, so it's so its impact is more complete, I guess. And its light then brings, yeah, it illuminates other it illuminates things other and things. inspires other things. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. So that takes, because the end of this book... I mean, this book is in a genre maybe called like hope punk. That's right. Where a dystopia like leaves you with a sense that it doesn't tell you how it will all work out, but it leaves you with a sense that things could could potentially work out. And there are people who who are kind of trying. People are trying. I mean, like. But but people might have to to sacrifice themselves in a trying. I mean. Yeah. um, Not to get all religious, but um, Sophie, you know, people who come down from the mountain with the news about what we need to do to be better don't often end up well, you know, right. She's very worried that, that she's going to become literally dissected as well as figuratively dissected and it become a monster or a freak. uh, And that her message is going to be not taken by people well because of this but she does at least have one convert by the end of the book i mean the one guy she says if you want to know what i know go out to the mountain and uh give yourself uh freely and then you'll know what i know and spread the message so maybe there is hope there as well and you just have to hope that when he goes to the mountain that he doesn't come back ready to spread the propaganda that he wants to use her for right but that he comes back with the truth and and knowledge of of what we need to do if we all want to make it. Yeah, because, I mean, the end of this book leaves you with, like, oh, and things are going to get worse, and there's cyclones, and <laughs> the, yes. the government we, is extremely But if we unstable. can just listen and move past where we are toward a place of, of reconciliation and healing and doing our own work, maybe we can fix this still. The, the things that we're hunting and killing are going to have to help save us, and we're going to have to learn to, yeah. right? Yeah. It yeah. could all happen. It could all happen. In the epilogue that we spend the rest of our own lives trying to orchestrate for our own world. Yes. Right? No problem. No problem. So, uh, so pretty heavy-duty philosophical book. So, next time. Yes. Let's uh, read something that's also a <laughs> snuggling book. A snuggling book? Uh, so It's not. <laughs> yeah. So, but, it's, but it's less heavy-duty. So, we could just spend all that time reading this other book. Also, continuing to mold this one and think about it. Uh, so next time on the, on the Book Evangelists, we'll be reading something to get me personally ready for NaNoWriMo. And maybe you ready too, Lissa. Everything um, I read gets me ready for NaNoWriMo. Everything you read. That's right. Because it's, it's only when we're recording this late August, but it's never too early to start getting ready for NaNoWriMo. And last year I wrote a romance novel. Uh, and I did a lot of romance reading before that to get ready for it. And it was a total bloodbath. Um, I did, you know, win and technically make my 50,000 words. But we learned I'm not a romance writer. So my question for NaNoWriMo this year is, well, if I'm not a romance writer, maybe I'm a mystery writer. Maybe I can write a mystery. So I have been getting ready to start, I guess, reading and listening to audiobooks of mysteries and i'm particularly thinking i'm going to write a cozy mystery with a historical setting the heyday of 
the mystery genre itself, which was the like, 20s and 30s, um, as I think my settings. So I'm suggesting that next time on The Book Evangelist, we read a cozy mystery with a historical British setting. So we're thinking maybe Agatha Christie? Yes. And I don't know which one yet. You've only ever read one Agatha Christie? I think so. I've read several, so we will... Have you have you read Murder on the Orient Express? I'm, sh- I'm sure that I know what happens, and I maybe have read it in a far distant past when I was a young teenager and read like a boatload of murder mysteries of the English varietal. But I'm thinking maybe Murder on the Orient Express? There is an audiobook narrated by Kenneth Branagh. And he made a movie where he plays in Murder on the Orient Express as well, relatively recently. So you could also watch the movie on the side if you can get it. Um, I can. I know where it's shelved at my local public okay. library. I, th- I think Murder on the Orient Express is a is an Hercule Poirot book, and I think he plays Hercule Poirot. Would that be okay, or do you need the other? No! So we'll read Murder on the Orient Express and or any other murder mysteries you come across and or watch the movie of Murder on the Orient Express, which has been done more than once. Uh, and discuss cozy mysteries, Agatha Christie, uh, how we feel about reading Agatha Christie, and uh, what we can get from this book that will help me write a better book in November. Sounds like a wonderful plan. That's a plan. So until then, thank you for listening to the Book Evangelist podcast. Please remember to listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Notes for this and previous episodes are available on the Book Evangelist website. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. Send us your comments and, of course, your book recommendations at thebookevangelists at gmail.com. Mm-hmm.